Hey, welcome. I'm Pastor Evan. Uh, I'm bringing up my coffee here. I see some of you with coffee. We do have coffee now in the back, on the table on the way in. That is our gift to you, along with the gift of caffeine. We also have the gift of Bibles in the back if you need them, because we're going to be in John chapter 15 today. Also, you may notice we started handing out bulletins again, how these worship outlines. Particularly, like, if you're interested in, like, why we do the order of service the way we do it, there actually is on the left, you'll see it says order of service, and on the right it says uh, the purpose for that section. So it's, it's really helpful, and there's a lot of good information on the back as well. So with that being said, let's dive into John chapter 15 and 16. I don't know if you've ever had uh, this kind of experience. Maybe you've gotten uh, a shot or a tattoo, or you need to get your finger pricked when you have to give blood. And you have to give yourself this little pep talk like I do when you go and do these things. It goes something like this. For me, it's like, okay, this is going to hurt. Be prepared for this to hurt. I know you don't like it. I know it's not going to feel good, but you can do it. You're a man. You can do this. And I have to do that. For whatever reason, I have to give myself this little pep talk. Otherwise, when somebody pricks my finger about when I give blood, I'll scream out like Buddy the Elf does in the movie Elf. Do you remember that when he gives blood to test his DNA to see if he's related to his father? He screams. That was like me the first time I got my finger pricked. I was like, okay, what are we doing here? So every time I go give blood, I have to give myself this little pep talk. See, what ends up happening is like shaping your expectations around pain helps you get through the pain. So you give yourself this little pep talk. You're expecting that this is going to hurt. You're expecting it's not going to feel good. So when it happens... You're not shocked and surprised by it. So what happens here in John chapter 15, Jesus shapes our expectations. He shapes it in such a way, in a very, what feels to us a very not positive 21st century Western way. This isn't like there's the self-esteem talk you give your kids. It's not going to be in any Hallmark cards anytime soon. Jesus says he wants you, he wants me, as he wanted his disciples to expect to be hated by the world. And why are they going to be hated by the world? Well, they're going to be hated by the world because the world hated Jesus. See, if we expect that we will be hated when the time comes, we won't be surprised. So I don't know if you know this, but Christianity is the most persecuted against, most discriminated against, most oppressed religion in the world. In 2021, the World Watch List, which was released, said in the last year there have been over 340 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. 340 million Christians. About 4,700, just over 4,700 Christians have been killed for their faith in the past year. And about 4,500 churches and other Christian buildings have been attacked. 4,200 believers have been detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. And during the pandemic, what we also have seen is Christians have been denied across the world pandemic-related relief resources. One report says some Christians have been told that, and that they have been denied aid from their governments, listen to this, because, and I quote, your church or your God should feed you. 
See, Jesus understands that if we're loyal to him, we'll be hated by the world. Like he was hated by the world. But he also says that we're given help by God to continue our mission in spite of hatred. See, Jesus says, expect to be hated because I was hated, but also expect that the Father will give you something, will give you a gift to help you. Because just like we talked about in John chapter 15, early in John chapter 15 about the vine and the branches, how the fruit, about the fruitfulness of mission, Jesus is saying, if you're going to be fruitful in mission, but the world's going to hate you and they're not going to like you and they're going to respond poorly to you and persecute you and discriminate against you, you need help to do that. So if we're loyal to Jesus, we'll be hated by the world like Jesus was hated, but we're given help by God to continue our mission in the face or in spite of that hatred. So I want to talk about three things today. I want to talk about our loyalty, our danger, and our helper. So first, I want to talk about our loyalty. If you look at John chapter 15, verse 18 through 20, Jesus says this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, right? Jesus is still talking like we did last week. We talked about last week. He's continuing that line of thought about being chosen out of the world. He says, because I chose you out of the world, therefore what? The world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. See, as followers of Jesus, we're called to be wholeheartedly dedicated to him. Donald Guthrie, when he talks about this passage, he says that the principle at work here is that like attracts like and repels opposites. Like attracts like and repels opposites. See, Jesus is saying, my disciples will be hated like I've been hated. The world is opposed to me, so the world repels against my followers. They'll be persecuted like Jesus, and their words and their works will be rejected like Jesus. And the reason this is happening is because the world is not necessarily opposed to you, but opposed to him. Loyalty to Jesus puts you in direct opposition to the world. When D.A. Carson talks about this passage, he says that the world is this Greek word cosmos. As commonly in John refers to this, in John, the way John uses the word world often refers to the created moral order in active rebellion against God. So John knows his Bible well. Jesus knows his Bible even better than John knows his Bible and understands that in Genesis chapter 1, God made everything good and everything was in harmony with him and with each other. But when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, all creation was subjected to sin and harmony was broken. And the ethos of the world from then till now and into the future until Jesus comes back will be one that's actively rebelling against God. Steve Huber, who's the director of our network, he talks about how 
loyalty to Jesus is like skating the opposite way at the palace skating rink. I don't know if you, when he's preached here, you may have heard him say that. Palace skating rink on the boulevard. If you think about when everybody skates, they all skate the same way. They said being loyal to Jesus is like skating the opposite way. If you start skating the opposite way at palace, you're going to get a lot of dirty looks. You're going to get a lot of bumps. You're going to get a lot of bruises, and you'll probably be pulled off of the skating rink. And it's the same type of idea that if we're loyal to Jesus, when the world is moving a certain direction, it has a certain flow, this flow of traffic. As a follower of Jesus, you're like salmon swimming up the opposite way of the stream. See, liking Jesus and being loyal to Jesus are two different things. See, a lot of people like Jesus, but being loyal to Jesus, that's a whole nother thing. So many of friends, and this might be your experience too, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that you like Jesus, but then being asked to be loyal to him, that's a whole nother thing. Because being loyal requires faithfulness. And for the world that is naturally bent towards rebellion against God, faithfulness is out of reach. So I've done a significant number of weddings up to this point in my life where I've been able to officiate weddings. And I love the traditional wedding vows. Every time I officiate a wedding, I always try to push couples to using the traditional vows. See, I don't mind if they write their own, but I think they should also include the traditional ones because too often the ones people write nowadays are just really superficial. It says something like the husband will say something like, I always promise to make you laugh. Like your wife doesn't need needs a husband. She doesn't need a comedian, right? And have you tried, anybody's been married, have you tried to make your wife laugh all the time? Like who could keep up with that type of experience? But the traditional vows emphasize loyalty. So when I officiate a wedding, I might say to the wife, do you have this man to be your husband, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Do you promise to love him, comfort him? honor and keep him in sickness and in health and forsaking all others to be faithful to him as long as you both shall live. And if she agrees, she says, I do. See, when you give your life to Jesus, you give all of your life to Jesus. You give completely every aspect of your life, all of your heart, mind, soul, body, everything to Jesus. And you forsake all others, all other religions, all other belief systems, all other ideologies. You forsake all of them to be faithful to Jesus, and you're faithful to him as long as you live. Just like a husband is supposed to be faithful to his wife as long as he lives. We're supposed to be faithful to our husband, Jesus, as his bride, for as long as we live. And when we do that, it angers the world because you're skating the opposite way. You're going against the current. Sam Albury, pastor, he says, we used to belong to the world. That's Jesus' point here. We used to belong to the world. The implication is that we now belong to Jesus instead. So Jesus called us out of the world, so we now belong to him. So he, as he, he continues, he says, following him is about far more than having a vague fondness for him. It's a fundamental shift of our identity and loyalty. Jesus has chosen us to be identified with him. Our relationship to the world has dramatically changed in a way that will provoke deep, animosity. 
There's a necessary cost of the Christian life, not an unfortunate extra for some unlucky believers to be avoided whenever possible. What Sam Albury is saying is that when we are chosen by Jesus, our identity shifts. And hatred from the world is just not an unfortunate extra. This comes with the territory. So you can like Jesus and still go with the flow of the world. But if you're loyal to Jesus, you experience such a dramatic identity shift that everyone bumps into you and gets angry for you going the opposite way. So there's real danger in following Jesus. If you look at John 16, starting in verse 1, Jesus said, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Following Jesus is dangerous. He wants you to understand that. He wants me to understand that. He's saying we should, be, we should expect to be hated by the world. We should never expect them to understand without the power of the Holy Spirit. We should never expect non-Christians to act like Christians. We shouldn't expect them to love us. And we should expect completely that the world will hate us. Because being loyal to Jesus is dangerous. Which is why Jesus says in other places that we should count the cost. Please, please, please do not follow Jesus. Jesus, as the pastor, I'm saying this. Do not follow Jesus unless you expect that the world will hate you for it. If you're not a follower of Jesus, please don't start following Jesus unless you're ready for the world to hate you for it. The world hated Jesus, so they will hate you. So expect to live a life of danger. And the danger of following Jesus comes in two forms. It comes in two ways. One, it comes from competing ideologies, right? Jesus says, whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. D.A. Carson says, he's writing uh, in the 20th century, he says, whether in the first century or in the 20th century, we can add the 21st century, Christians have often discovered that the most dangerous oppression comes not from careless pagans, but from zealous adherence to religious faith and from other ideologies. A sermon was preached when Cramner was burned at the stake. Christians have faced severe persecution performed in the name of Yahweh, in the name of Allah, in the name of Marx, and even in the name of Jesus. See, the ideologies and religions of the world are increasingly hostile to Christians. See, the average person on the street does not care whether or not you're a Christian. But it becomes a problem when your faith begins to compete with deeply held ideologies, deeply held belief systems. See, this is true for religious and secular persons and secular or religious countries. So you try to evangelize a North Korean, expect jail time. You try to baptize a convert in Iran, expect to be executed. 
But tell a capitalist about Jesus' care for the poor, expect to be called a socialist. Tell a nationalist that Jesus cares about immigrants, expect to be called anti-American. Tell a progressive that Jesus is the only way and expect to be told you're not inclusive. Tell a hardcore Republican, hey, by the way, Jesus loves Democrats too and expect to be told you're complicit in baby killing. Tell a hardcore Democrat that Jesus loves Republicans too. Expect to be told you're complicit in racism. Tell your parents that Jesus told us to love him and the family of believers more than our biological families and expect to be told by your mom or your dad that you're abandoning the family. See, our world has ideological gods, and the world will naturally seek to serve those gods by removing all others. But notice this. Did you notice that Jesus does not attribute sinister motives to those who kill his followers? He says that they will think they're doing the right thing. Too often Christians attribute sinister motives to those who oppose us. We claim that they're opposed to us because they have some type of dark, secret agenda. Right? They, they want to take away our freedoms. First off, who is they that wants to take my freedoms? They want to take our kids from us. They want power. They want control. They want to manipulate us. But Jesus doesn't speak like that. Jesus says they think they're doing the right thing. They think they're doing the right thing. He doesn't say there's these sinister motives that they have, that they want to take away your freedoms. He says they think they're serving God. Jesus' attitude is completely different to the people that oppose him. While he doesn't say that because what they think they're doing is right means it's okay, right? Because they think they're serving God, that's totally fine, it's totally cool, like you do you. That's not what Jesus says at all. But he understands that sin is so rooted within us that it blinds us from seeing how and where we're wrong. And how did Jesus always treat the blind? With empathy. Jesus always treated the blind with empathy, even the spiritually blind, like you and me. See, there's a danger in following Jesus. There's a danger that you'll be hated. But there's also a greater danger that Jesus warns us of, is that we'll fall away. Jesus is realistic, that there is the danger that you'll be hated, but Jesus is more concerned that you'll fall away in the face of hatred. Look what he says in verse 1. He says, I've said all these things to you. So you know they'll take away your freedoms? No. That because they're coming for your kids? No. Because they're going to kill you? No. I said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. I used to work for a local university. We had this, one time we had this full-scale, all-out, active shooter drill across campus. 
So they hired these professional trainers to run this program, and the whole campus was blocked off from visitors, obviously, for that day. You don't want visitors to show up when there's an active shooter drill going on, right? So they called, they called these trainers in, they called the local police and the local SWAT team, and they're notified that we're running this drill. And actually, the local police and the SWAT team are like, this is great, we should be a part of this too, so we all can test our systems, right? So that way, when somebody calls 911 and says there's an active shooter at the university, they know this is a drill and this is not a real thing. So they come with guns with no ammo in it versus guns with ammo in it, stuff like that, right? So they come with these fake weapons or guns with no ammo. And they're, we're all trained ahead of time. We're in this session, in this presentation about dangerous situations. When dangerous situations show up, here's how you should respond. And then we ran the drill. And what we didn't know like where this, we were told where the situation would take place on campus. All we know is that we would get a text message on our phone and I was responsible for locking certain doors in one part of the building. And then I was supposed to, re I was supposed to respond as if it was a real situation. And what we learned in the presentation that in the face of danger, there's normally two natural responses to danger. What are they? Fight or flight. So I got the text message, and the drill was on the other side of campus from where I was. So I was like, great. I'm in the clear. I'm going to go lock all these doors, which I got paid significantly underpaid for to lock all these doors, by the way. Not that I hold a grudge. So I locked all the doors, tossed my keys in the grass, and I ran. Like, if it's fight or flight, I flew out of there. Only to be told that that's, I was supposed to actually come back and meet at a different location. But I found that day, in the face of danger, even though it was a drill, fight or flight, Evans flighting as fast as he can away from the danger. See, Jesus doesn't see being hated as the ultimate danger. He expects that hatred will come. Jesus is saying that the ultimate danger is that when you're hated, you'll fall away. So you'll fall away in two ways, flight or fight. So many of us, our reaction to danger, to hatred is flight. Like Pam from The Office when she says, I hate the idea that someone out there hates me. I, even, I hate even thinking that Al-Qaeda hates me. I think if they got to know me, they wouldn't hate me. See, many of us can't understand the idea that anyone would hate us. We think like, well, if we just got coffee together, they wouldn't hate me. Which is not like Jesus' answer to hatred. Jesus' answer isn't like, hey, by the way, if they hate you, just grab a cup of coffee and everybody will be cool. So whether you've been a Christian for a long time, you're considering being one, many of us are like Pam from the office. So whenever there's a potential threat of being hated, all we can do is avoid it. We can't help ourselves, but we avoid it. We keep quiet. We never talk about Jesus. And no one anywhere at work, on our block, our friends, no one knows we're Christians because we're just quiet about it. So we become practical atheists. Everything about our lives look like, looks like we're atheists, except maybe we'll show up at church on Sunday. 
So what happens is when we live lives of practical, as practical atheists, we go into this PR mode whenever somebody hates us. We go, so, well, well, you know what? Yeah, I, I know what you saw on TV, but I'm not like one of those Christians. I'm a cool Christian. I'm, I, I know what you saw on TV. I, I'm not a bigot. I love everybody. Yeah, I know that Jesus said all that stuff about generosity, but it's your money. You do what you want with it. Yeah, I know Jesus said you should commit to worshiping on Sunday mornings or Sundays and you, get, you got time and a half for working, extra shifts. Yeah, Jesus understands. Go ahead. Everything about our lives looks like we're practical atheists and we do all, everything we can in the face of danger to flee it, to avoid it. Even on small stuff like generosity or attending church. We're so worried about people hating us that we never stand up for anything. We never challenge anyone. And the other way is fight. Flight, and then there's fight. It's another way we fall away. Pastor Derwin Gray said something like this recently in one of his sermons. He says, too many Christians pick up their boxing gloves when they should be picking up their cross. Too many of us pick up our boxing gloves instead of picking up our cross. Jesus doesn't say, well, if the world hits you, hit back. No, he says, pick up your cross and follow me. But since so many Christians have attributed sinister motives to our opponents, we think we have no choice but to fight back. So we fight the Republicans or we fight the Democrats, or we fight the government, or we fight this mandate or that policy or this law, and we fight the socialists, and then we fight the scientists, and we know we got to fight the activists. But that all this is, does great damage to Jesus' name. In the fourth century, there's a Christian called Lactantius. He says this, he says, if you want to defend religion by bloodshed, torture, and evil then at once it will not be so defended. It will be polluted and outraged. There is nothing that is so much a matter of willingness as religion. And if someone making sacrifice is spiritually turned off, then it's gone. It's nothing. What he's saying is, if we want to respond when the world hits us, if we want to hit back, we're going to do great damage to the name of Jesus. See, you and I might not experience bloodshed or torture anyone in the name of Jesus, but our aggression towards the world pollutes the gospel and it turns off people from it. There's good evidence that the societies shift when it comes to the LGBTQ community and the feelings around that community and activism around that community is a large part of response to what the Christian right did in the 80s and 90s because we were too busy picking fights when we should be picking up our crosses. And if Jesus is right, that like attracts like. If you want to fight, expect to be fought. We should expect hatred like Jesus, but not go looking for a fight and then claim that we're hated like him which leads to false claims of persecution. American Christians, we do this all the time. I don't know why we want to be persecuted so badly, but we like to claim it all the time. 
But a large part of it is because we're going looking for a fight. And then we go, yeah, guess what? I'm being persecuted just like Jesus. I'm being hated just like Jesus. Bro, you're not hated because you're like Jesus. You're hated because you're a jerk. And the world doesn't need more jerks. The world doesn't need more people looking for a fight. See, falling away either through flight and f- or fight boils down to control. See, the reason we flight is we're trying to control how others perceive us. And the reason we fight is because we're trying to control how others act around us. But what happens when you try to control someone all the time Like, what happens when you try to control how others perceive you all the time? Do you understand you'll never really get to be yourself? You'll never be able to tell anybody who you really are. You'll never be vulnerable. You'll never be transparent because you're always worried about controlling the perception people have of you. Do you know how hard it is to play PR the whole time? So you'll end up exhausted trying to do that trying to keep this lie like you're something you're not or someone you're not. And what happens when you try to control how others act around you? I don't know if you realize this, but people don't like to be controlled by you. So they rebel. So you end up trying to get people to do what you want them to do when you want them to do it. And what happens is you become stubborn because you keep strapping on the boxing gloves and you keep getting punched in the mouth and you wonder why. So you double down and you become even more stubborn. Your stubbornness ends up destroying all your relationships because everyone sees what's happening and you won't listen. And you too, you end up exhausted because all you do is fighting the whole time. And you become bitter at all the other Christians who didn't join the fight. And so as Jesus says, to remain loyal to him is to expect to be hated like him. And because he knows it's difficult to be hated, though, he sends help. Jesus is realistic. He knows that you're going to be hated by the world, but he also knows you need help. So he sends our helper Look at verse 26 of John chapter 15. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. See, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to help us in our mission for the world. Sam Albury, he says this, that the sending of the Holy Spirit shows us that the world may have rejected God, but God has not rejected the world. God sends the Holy Spirit to us because God understands that the world is going to hate us. He's go- they're going to hate him and they're going to reject him. But God has not rejected the world. See, God loved the world so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for the very people who will hate him. And due to Adam and Eve's sin, we're not born as friends of God, but as enemies. So we're all born naturally in this posture of rejecting and hating God. But even when we reject God, he did not reject us. He made himself vulnerable by coming to earth and taking on flesh as Jesus. And Jesus was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was rejected and hated. 
by the very people he came to save. And yet he did it because God has not rejected those who hate him. And praise God that he did it. That he doesn't reject us. Otherwise, we'd be dead in our sins and our trespasses. And he sent the Holy Spirit so we can face the world with expectation that we will be hated, but we do so because we show the same love that we've received to the world. Even if that means the world responds with ridicule, mocking, hatred, persecution, and even tries to kill you for it. I always find that when a team wins a, I find this kind of be funny when a team wins a championship, how everyone, no matter how much they played that year, gets to be a champion. And they can always walk around saying that they're a champion. Like there's a bunch of guys with clean jerseys or suits on at the end of the bench that they could get their names on a trophy. But that's how it works when you're on a team. You're part of the team. You put on the uniform like everybody else and you jump in when you're called upon and you may not be the team MVP or you may not be the guy who caught the winning touchdown or hit the buzzer beater, but you're a champion. Nonetheless, you share in the victory. And Jesus wants us to understand, the New Testament wants us to understand that because we share in his sufferings, we'll also share in his victory. A bunch of us will have clean jerseys on or suits at the end of the bench. But because Jesus chose us, he shares his victory with us. You did nothing to earn that victory. Jesus did that for you. And you're just called to be faithful to him. Be ready to jump in when called upon. And that might mean that you get hit. It might mean that you get some dirt on your jersey. It might mean you wake up in the morning with bumps and bruises or aches and pains that you don't remember how you got them. For many of us, many of our brothers and sisters, that even means death. Death, like Jesus experienced death. And we're hated. We share in Jesus' hatred, but we also share in his victory, like 1 Peter 4 says. It says this, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You share in Christ's sufferings, but you also share in his victory. And when I understand that I'm going to be hated by the world, that God gives me a helper in spite of that hatred to continue the mission, that I might experience suffering, but I also experience Jesus' victory, I'm not surprised when hatred comes. Jesus gave me the pep talk. I don't have to give the pep talk to myself. If we expect to be hated, we won't be surprised when it happens. And our gut response will be, won't be like, hey, maybe if we just grab the cup of coffee, that person will like me. Maybe. But if Jesus is right, like attracts like and repels opposites, it's probably not going to happen. But it's worth a shot. But you won't be surprised if they rejected the message of the gospel. And you're filled with boldness. So you have a helper in the Holy Spirit so you can be bold in telling others about Jesus. And you're also not only filled with boldness, but you're filled with hope. 
You won't put your hope in controlling other people's perceptions of you or how they act around you, but you'll hope in Jesus and that you'll share in his victory. So my challenge to you is, with that all in mind, don't fall away. Don't fall into the temptation of flight or fight. The world will hate you like it hated Jesus. But stand in hope. God gave you the Holy Spirit for the task ahead. And although you share in Jesus' rejection, you will also share in his victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus has called us, and because he's called us, we're no longer your enemies, but your friends. And I, although we might be hated by the world and experience the sufferings of Jesus, we thank you that we'll also experience his victory because we put our faith and trust in him. If you're here today and you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus and you are aware of your rejection towards God, how you repel against him, I just want to give you a moment to silently confess that rebellion to him. And give your life over to Jesus. And just say, Jesus, I've rebelled up to this point, rejected you, and maybe even hated your followers. But forgive me. I put my faith and trust in you today. Give me the grace I need to be part of your team, to be on mission with you. Amen.